Hello and welcome back to another edition of the Security Conversations podcast. My guest really needs no introduction, but I'll try. Katie Masuris is founder and CEO of Luther Security, computer hacker with more than 20 years of experience in this industry, having done stints in many, many major places and a pioneer in what has become the bug bounty ecosystem, if you want to call it that. I want to start with Luta Security first, though. Katie, the last time we caught up, you were hanging out with me at LabsCon, making history at uh, uh, the conference where you guys uh, uh, were uh, sponsors. Talk to me about Luta Security, what exactly it is and what do you guys do? Well, Luta Security is my company that I started in 2016, right after launching Hack the Pentagon. And the company specializes in helping organizations and governments respond gracefully to reports from hackers, bug reports, bug bounty reports, coordinated vuln disclosure reports, but essentially um, trying to get bugs fixed in a graceful and repeatable way. And that's what our company does. Who, I mean, I, I imagine your company is brought in by a security program to, uh, do you guys do the actual, you, you, you manage the bug bounty program for them? Give me, dive a little bit deeper into like what a, what a normal program of yours would look like. Well, first we go in and do a, what we call a vulnerability coordination maturity model assessment. It just like rolls right off your tongue. But it's a, a VCMM assessment is our way of testing an organization to see if they're ready for a robust bug bounty program or vuln disclosure program. We look at five different capability areas, and it's really based on a lot of my experience in creating these programs for some of the biggest companies in the world and the largest military in the world, um, you know, and uh, really, you know, identifying key behaviors and structures within an organization that lend itself to success, as opposed to what we call bug bounty Botox, which is what you don't want. You don't want to throw a vuln disclosure program or a bug bounty program up and say, you know, have at us and you have no mechanisms to deal with these issues over time. Um, and some of our customers um, have been running bug bounties for quite some time, and they've sort of hit a wall where they, you know, have too many reports that they've never fixed. They have nobody internally who's taking care of these programs anymore. It might have started out strong, but now it's very weak, you know, and um, we go in and we assess their maturity. And then we offer them, you know, essentially two paths to success. They can take our advice and try to implement some of the changes internally themselves. Or we can come in and do it as a staff augmentation contract. And the cool thing about it is that all of the contractors we bring in, we train them, we leave behind standard operating procedures, and the organization is free to hire those people full time if they want to keep them after our engagement's over. You talked about this uh, uh, this maturity measurement in the beginning to, to determine whether an organization is ready. What does readiness look like? Well, you know, five capability areas that we look at, we look at organizational communications, engineering, analytics, and incentives. Those are the five areas. And for us, I mean, I think they're all important, but if you don't have the basic level um, of organizational agreement, right, that they're actually going to fix the bugs that come in, in these bug reports, you're really not going to get very far. So that's, you know, the number one prerequisite to running these programs well, is having that organizational basic commitment to do something, um, you know, when somebody reports a bug. Can we linger here for a little bit and what mm -hmm. does that commitment look like? Does they, do they have to have a CISO? I mean, is there like a, is there a standard template for readiness versus not being ready? And, uh, and, and 
what what level of maturity should an organization be at before they're I'm trying to get a sense of should a startup with just a head of security have a bug bounty program if he doesn't have staff to fix it and I'm trying to you know get from your sense what is what is what does it look like well, you know, it's funny because you bring up a startup with only, you know, one person really um, thinking about security. And that's exactly the situation that I ran into last year with Clubhouse. I hacked Clubhouse by accident and I tried to report a security vulnerability to them. And it took like a couple weeks to even get, you know, a, an email address that didn't bounce. And then finally, um, to get a person to respond, I had to send them videos of myself explaining the international standards that I wrote, like that I co-authored. And you shouldn't have to be a co-author of the international standards on vulnerability disclosure to get someone to pay attention. What I found out was they were running a bug bounty. And when I finally got on the phone with uh, one of the founders, I asked, well, how many people do you have, you know, doing security right now? And I found out he's the only one. It was one of the co-founders and they hadn't even hired, you know, a single security person, but they had this private bug bounty. So what they were doing was they were using the non-disclosure terms of the bug bounty to try and capture any vulnerability reports pay them off and not actually fix them or maybe take a really long time to fix them. So I didn't agree to those terms and no, they were not ready to be running a bug bounty program. Um, they shouldn't be even to this day. And I'm glad day, you used Clubhouse as an example because Clubhouse mm-hmm. at the time had raised $100 million already. So it's not a sense yeah. of being being well capitalized or being funded. It's a case of just having some sort of basic foundation in place, right? Right. It's about prioritization. And they hadn't prioritized. I mean, they were building features too fast to secure them. We actually just saw this happen with Hive, the social media platform that maybe had two developers and they got super popular because Twitter's imploding. And suddenly they had to shut down because they had so many bug reports they've got to, you know, address. I mean, you could edit your posts and you could edit anyone else's posts too. So the platform just wasn't ready for the responsibility that it carried, you know, for its users and to protect its users. So we'll see. Um, We'll see if organizations get smarter about that. But I think that venture capital should really organize around, um, you know, not trying to push their young fledgling startups into bug bounty programs just to check a box. I think they should, you know, be looking at building out a security team as soon as they start getting serious users, you know, because that that increases their risk, increases their responsibility, not just for security, but privacy as well. I'm old enough to remember when bug bounties were controversial, when companies <laughs> like Microsoft frowned on bug bounties. It was, uh, you know, we, 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 we've, come a, we've come a long way. And this evolution has taken us to a place where you just mentioned using NDAs to suppress information or just buy information and, and, and perhaps buy time. But when you look back at where we were in the controversial days of bug bounties through corporate, the corporate world adopting it, through where we are today, where it's kind of like a standard part of every program. If you don't have a bug bounty program, you're seen as somewhat immature. When you look back at all this time that we've spent, did you expect we'd be here or where did you envision this would be by 2022? You know, I, you know, at the time, I just wanted to make sure that it was legal for me and my friends to, you know, get paid for our work, even if we weren't um, working at a pen test company all the time. Right. So um, I think that part, you know, where it's largely accepted that you will eventually receive a vulnerability report from a friendly hacker, I think that part has turned out better than I could have expected, right? But it's come at a great cost. It's come at the cost of people 
um, thinking that a bug bounty is any indication of security maturity, which it's not, you know, mm -hmm. it's not an indication that you're more mature than a company or an organization that only has a vuln disclosure program. It's not even, you know, neither of those are really an indication of security maturity. It's more holistic than that. Um, but I do think that we do need to take a step back because there's a lot of labor abuse that has come with the over-adoption and over-reliance on bug bounties and, and even vulnerable disclosure programs that are going for just points. Um, you know, there can be a lot of labor abuse involved in those as well. And, um, you know, I think that's something that as we look at how the economy changes for all professions, the gig economy is a place that, you know, we have high hopes for it being like a great uh, opportunity for a lot of people. But the gig economy, as it's applied to other markets, has been very exploitative. And I see it being, you know, those patterns being repeated in the security space. And I, I want to stop it. I, I want to, uh, when I was preparing for a talk I gave at Echo Party recently, I was looking back at like the big stories I've written over the years. And one of the trend was own to own, no more free bugs. And what you just mentioned, you know, this battle to get researchers paid for their work, because a lot of it used to be security researchers would find vulnerabilities, report it to the vendor, and then go through this rigmarole process of fighting with the vendors. And then they never got paid. They worked more or less for headlines and, 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 and uh, an acknowledgement in a bulletin, right? We've moved past that, but and you mentioned this trade-off and this cost that we've paid. Has it been worth the price of removing that hacker ecosystem that kept vendors accountable? Now vendors are using hackers to, you know, use NDAs to hide information, determine whether they want to patch something, and the, the researcher can't even mention it, even if the even if the vendor refuses to patch it. We've seen these kind of tweets popping up here and there. In your mind, has the trade-off been worth it? Because it feels like we've lost the we've lost the hacker community as this, you know, driving force about keeping vendors honest. Where do you how do you view this trade-off? I actually, you know, while the vendors definitely want to make it seem like um, there are no more hacktivists. Um, I think that there are enough of us who are independent, who don't need you know the cash, who don't need to sit on a bug bounty platform to make a living, where we're privileged enough that we can pull the ripcord when we see that it's um, that it's not in the best interest of users for us to stay silent. So we're, you know, we're a minority, though, right? What's that? It's a minority, though. It's a small minority. I mean, I don't, vast... I don't think so. I think it's always been. Um, you know, a question of, is it worth it to me to stay silent for a few hundred bucks for a few thousand bucks? So I think, I think the vast majority of people, if they see something really egregious and an organization refuses to fix it, I think the vast majority of hackers will still blow the whistle, will still actually disclose. Um, and we see this happening over and over again, even with researchers who don't have a name for themselves ahead of time, um, you know, ahead of doing these disclosures. They, I've seen researchers turn down significant bug bounty payouts. Um, actually, it's the five-year anniversary of DJI, the drone company, mm -hmm. um, trying to buy Kevin Finisterre's silence. And he um, he's dot slash on Twitter with, with a zero. And he, um, he turned down over $30,000 uh, because he didn't think it was fair to the users whose data was exposed not to tell them about the the data breach of their you know of their videos of their photos right. taken by that drone so anyway I think there's a lot there are still a lot of hackers who will um, 
you know, they will fight for the user. Right. But for every KF, there's a security researcher in India that's reported a web app bug and the vendor says, eh, out of scope. And then he tries to blog about it and then they block him up from blogging about it and threaten to kick him out of a bug bounty program, right? Like that yeah. is, that seems to me to be the norm. And I feel like that has removed the level of accountability that hackers had the power to hold vendors for. And I've, and, and, and that's something that seems like it's unfixable. Oh, I think it's fixable though, because I think that one, you know, um, I think that organizations that do hit a certain level of maturity where they understand that even if they can't handle all of the bugs that are coming in, they actually don't want to put up non-disclosure agreement barriers to having some of the best researchers on earth come forward, right? Um, So organizations are getting a little bit wiser about that. And the organizations we work with, you know, certainly um, they prefer that a researcher give them time to fix fix issues. But if they can't get to it in a reasonable timeframe, they understand and they prefer to coordinate that disclosure, even if it's before a patch. So this is, you know, essentially... These are the kinds of lessons that a lot of organizations are just not really far enough on their journey to understand yet. It's that it's in their best interest to avoid non-disclosure agreements, even in bug bounties, because of what it does and put a barrier between your organization and the smartest security researchers. And you want them coming forward with no barriers. I want to take a step back to your Black Hat talk this year. You talked about, you know, you kind of over, overview of the evolution of the bug bounty ecosystem. One of the points you made there was the, the, the importance of recording the right metrics and acting on them. You, you make the argument that organizations can't even possibly evaluate the bugs in any sort of meaningful way to like measure health of the organization. What are the right metrics? Is there like a, a simple way of describing what, what these metrics are? And give me some examples of how, how these metrics can drive actual uh, security improvement in meaningful ways. Well, there's a ton of metrics that you can take here, but I'll just highlight a couple of them. Um, Mm -hmm. Some of the easiest ones to describe, as you were saying. Um, So a lot of bug bounty programs and vulnerable disclosure programs will show you your duplicate rate, but it's an overall duplicate rate. Like, you know, maybe 50% of the submissions are duplicates or 60%, whatever that is. For the people who are not in our world, just a little bit about what a duplicate is. A duplicate would mean um, more than one researcher found the exact same bug and reported it, right? So in a bug bounty program, only the first person to report an issue gets paid. Everybody else doesn't. However, um, even in a vuln disclosure program, um, the first researcher to report issues might get, you know, the full platform points or reputation points, um, whatever it is, and they will get, you know, um, added into favorably into private programs that might be very lucrative. So it's still valuable even in programs that don't pay on uh, vuln disclosure platforms, bug bounty platforms, still valuable to be the first. However, those metrics are not very interesting for organizations, um, not as interesting or actionable as the per bug duplicate rate. So that means for this one bug, how many duplicates did you get for this one bug? Why is that important? Well, because that actually tells you how discoverable that issue is and potentially how exploitable, easily exploitable it is. So why does that matter? Well, sometimes you have a lot of researchers kind of reporting a relatively low severity or medium severity bug, but that one has a very high duplicate rate compared to maybe somebody reporting this more more serious bug, but only one report there. So you might have a little bit less time 
before the medium severity bug gets exploited. So you should probably prioritize fixing that medium severity bug faster. And that is something that, you know, as a metric, most organizations aren't looking at that depth. And that's just one example of, you know, where we help fine tune these programs. Do they get that from the public bug bounty platforms? Like this duplicate nope. bug rate. And so, the, so that's not available there. Right. And that's one of the things that, you know, I when I used to work for one of the bug bounty platforms, I said, this is actually something that's actionable in real time if you if you were to draw this out. And they just didn't see a reason to do that. Why? Because it doesn't particularly add to their bottom line sales. If they do say, look at how many duplicates we saved you from looking at because we did the triage for you, that overall duplicate rate is something you get out of the bug bounty platforms. But it's really just like a sales enhancer of saying, like, look at how messy your inbox would have been without us, right? Um, what I look at in terms of the overall duplicate rate, um, in terms of a metric, is definitely a symptom. That That is a symptom of the fact that your overall security program was missing some uh potentially basic steps in looking for that particular class of vulnerability on your own. Um, because if so many researchers found it and you have a very high overall duplicate rate, that just means you're missing uh, running a lot of these tests yourself. And can I, are there are there data points that can help me figure out uh, the, the, the time I'm taking to respond to things, whether I'm going over a 90 day uh, disclosure period, like, I'm not entirely sure what are these data points that 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 are available, even just to help help a CISO or help a security leader do these measurements. Well, you know, one of the things we find when we ask people to tell us what is their mean time to repair, you know, just so we can see how far are they from industry norms of 90 days, you know, fixing most vulnerabilities. Um, we find that a lot of organizations can't even count uh, in that way, you know, right? Because they don't really, uh, they might count a single vulnerability reported on a single endpoint as one issue, or they might count it, um, you know, as a single vulnerability reported on multiple endpoints as either multiple issues or one issue. Um, they might count things like, well, we fixed the incoming bug report, but then we took a year to fix all the other instances of that same bug that we knew about, right? So it gets really complicated if they haven't been deliberately trying to count what their true mean time to repair is and sort of what the comprehensiveness is of their bug fixes. One of the things I'm starting to notice a lot popping up, and I'm writing a lot about this, is uh, the issue of patch quality, faulty patches, mm -hmm. incomplete patches. Is that is that something that bug bounty data can help with, kind of help determine uh, whether patches are reaching the appropriate quality level and you're not having to reissue updates? You know, most organizations are not tracking that. And that's something that, you know, we pay attention to. I mean, if if you think about it, what we do is kind of like Dr. House looks, looks at a bunch of these symptoms that a bunch of other doctors have said, you know, you've got lupus, like you you need a bug bounty program. And we're, we're more comprehensive than that because one, you know, we understand that, it's all it's all fine to say incorporate this back into your security development life cycle but honestly most organizations are barely able to keep up with just the fixing of the bug bounty reports just fixing the what bugs that come in let alone able to count these more sophisticated metrics and really take some action that is more long term um, more strategic and less you know playing whack a bug 
Bug bounties, penetration testing, security assessment, that world is a people world. It's a, it's a mm-hmm. lot of throwing humans at tasks at a time when we have a skill shortage across the board, a cybersecurity skill shortage across the board. Where, where are we headed in this environment where uh, uh, the, the entire industry depends on bodies and bodies are not available? Is that something that's tractable? How do you, how do you see us moving forward? Well, I'm old enough to know that uh, there used to be no security jobs. We would just, you know, kind of lay the railroad the track. Fly, right? <laughs> yeah, we'd lay the railroad track ahead of us in our roles and in organizations. Um, as we were building out organizations, we would build out the capacity to secure them. Um, but I think that a lot of cybersecurity careers should probably grow a little bit more organically. And, you know, we say there's a big cybersecurity um uh, you know, skills shortage and people shortage, but we actually have a ton of people who want to be in cybersecurity. They simply can't meet the requirements for most of the cybersecurity job listings because they're listed as too high and you have to have all these years of experience. But how do you get those years of experience when there are hardly any entry-level cybersecurity jobs? So, um, you know, we actually have started um, started creating a formal internship program. This is honestly how we hire and train right now. And it's not to train hackers. That's the whole misnomer there or, you know, kind of misapplied job role that we have a shortage of, we don't have a shortage of people who know how to find and exploit vulnerabilities. I'm going to say that again as a hacker. We don't have a shortage of hackers. We actually have a shortage of people who know how to build things more securely. And we have a shortage of people who know how to maintain security. So it's those jobs that are, you know, that we're, we're lacking skilled labor. And we're also lacking a solid pipeline, which is part of the reason why we're building a formal internship program to build out that cybersecurity workforce. Do you recommend that students and kids get into the certification game, get certified? Uh, uh, do you recommend kids go to school and get a college degree? Or are you a proponent of, you know, in learning case, on the fly? In case my children ever watch this, yes, go to college, <laughs> get a college degree. I, you know, I, I, uh, I dropped out, so I ha- will have to, you know, be honest there. Um, I, I don't know what the best path is for kids today because, you know, I'm of a certain age where there was no path and we were there, you know, we were kind of the first ones up the mountain um, putting the stakes in for, for others to climb after us. Um, I would say that, you know, the most important skills that have transcended the time or place are, you know, curiosity, um, an attitude of constantly learning, no matter how senior you are. Um, so if you're junior and you keep that open mind throughout your career, you'll always be relevant. Um, and I would also say to young people, don't be intimidated by, you know, people having a lot more experience than you. There are new technologies all the time and an old timer in security is going to know zero about that new technology. And you have a chance to become the expert in that technology. So, you know, be tomorrow's expert. 100% agree with that one specifically. Uh, I I don't know how you find the time to do all this, but while I have you here, I'll have to ask, what's the latest with the Wassenaar arrangement? Has (laughs) Has those exceptions all been settled? Like, where are we today? So the exceptions that I helped renegotiate as part of the Wassenaar arrangement, those exceptions to export control of intrusion software, intrusion software technology, um, those exceptions are in place. And, you know, 
know, the, the rule is, has finally been put in place in the United States as well um, of allowing for uh, no export control license required if you are disclosing a vulnerability or responding to an incident. So that's a big relief for a lot of organizations and a lot of uh, actually a lot of hackers as well. Those um, exceptions are only in the U.S. though, correct? Nope, they're uh, for every WAS in our country. They've right. all they all implemented their rules, and we were kind of right, the last right. ones. So that is now all forty-two countries that are subject to WAS and are have those exceptions. You are also a member of the Cybersecurity Review Board. Let me see if I got That's it right. right. CSRB, the Cybersecurity Review Board, set up as part of the Biden executive order to you know pick these big things and go to uh, 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 kind of recap investigations. You guys did the first one on Log4j came out with some recommendations and so on. But, but you chose as part of, one, when the report was issued, you chose to blog about cautioning uh, the U.S. government against the urge to match China's vulnerability early disclosure thing. Why did you choose to do that? Do you get a sense that there's some energy here uh, around going in that direction? Well, there's a lot of energy generally in the U.S. government and other governments, our, our partners across across the Atlantic, especially um, in having early reporting of not just breaches, right? Because breaches, you know, we had breach reporting rules already for those, but now there are, you know, reporting requirements for critical infrastructure to report, you know, to CISA, for example, if they have a, um, you know, a security incident. So now. Now it's, you know, down to the incidents. What I don't want it to get down to is to the level of vulnerability reports for vulns that aren't fixed yet, because that is, you know, at a level where- And that's where, what China is requiring, right? If you can just take a step China back and is, explain, right? Yeah. So what China is requiring is not that individual researchers do this. They're, they're telling individual researchers, go ahead and disclose, you know, to the, the proper vendor or government, you know, um, but what they're requiring in China is that if a, if a company, <coughs> excuse me, if a company becomes uh, aware of a security hole that affects their own software, that they just have a few days to report that to uh, to China's government, and if the U.S. and its allies re you know required that of companies you know, that, that are based in their countries in the, you know, in the U S for example, if our government required that, that I think would be a disaster. We would What's be aggregating danger? bugs. We'd be aggregating bugs inside the federal government for which there are no fixes. And, you know, if you thought OPM was a juicy target, boy, an entire, you know, what I call a buggy bank full of bugs, you know, that affect multiple U S companies all concentrated in the U S government or anywhere, I think that would be a disaster. Why is it a disaster? Though? What's the danger in a government getting an OD information ahead of? Uh, uh, help me understand what's the. Well, biggest. I think it would be. I think it would be a disaster for national security for the United States if we had a, a collection that was centrally managed by any entity, especially you know the the government. Um, you know, did you know that the government had to issue a binding operational directive just to get its own servers patched? And this is for known exploited vulnerabilities. So the last time we got a report, one of my other boards, uh, a NIST board, got a report back from CISA on how that's going. And it's somewhere between 1.2 and 1.4 million 
unsecured internet facing endpoints in the federal enterprise right now. So if the US government can't keep up with patching its own systems, why would we want to have a repository, you know, of bugs of all of these private companies? And to me, that's just a target. That's like, that's like I call it, you know, a buggy bank for for robbing, right? Somebody will come in and rob the buggy bank um, of all of these vulnerabilities. And once it's breached, that's it. You know, all those companies that are trying to fix those bugs, they would have to scramble because our adversaries would then have a whole bunch of zero days. It would be like solar winds times a thousand. Uh, I want to close with something a little more positive. We've mm-hmm. talked a lot about everything that's bad with bug bounties. Where do we go from here? Where, in your mind, what is the what is the? I don't want to say perfect because that doesn't exist. But what is the ideal solution? What's the ideal bug bounty approach? I think. An ideal approach to bug bounties is, you know, it's kind of like your ideal approach to therapy, right? First, you change yourself. Like first, you gotta you gotta look inwards, um, and you've gotta you've gotta be better at securing your own system such that your duplicate rate is very low, right? What we try to do with our customers is we try to get them to, you know, from multiple of the same types of vulnerabilities and even the same exact issues. Um, down to very few bugs, very sophisticated, hard to find, hard to exploit, right? That is a real indication of security maturity, not whether or not you have a bug bounty. So I think that, you know, looking at it holistically, that is the future. It's also the future where you respect the maintainers and respect the builders as, you know, the the um, real security essential roles that they are, not just the hackers, right? Before I got on here, I watched your Black Hat talk. And at the end of it, you talked about a, a bug bounty referral program that you're running at mm-hmm. Luta. Is that still in place? Talk a little bit about what that is. What is the motivation there? Well, you know, it's sort of a crowdsourced sales model, if you think about it. And it's basically open to the entire world, as long as you're not legally prohibited from taking part in it. But we will pay referral bounties um, to folks that make an email introduction between us and an organization that ends up signing a contract with us. So if you want the details to that, if you go to lutasecurity.com slash referral bounty, that is um, where all the details are. And we are running that program all the way at least until, um, you know, Vegas this year, Black Hat DEF CON. And at the end of the year of running this program, we are actually going to award 10 times the bounty in each category. So that means that while you could get, you know, $20,000 or $10,000 per bounty for one of the categories of contracts, at the end of the year, we're going to give away $100,000. So, you know, if organizations, especially if bug bounty hunters know of an organization that is struggling to meet, you know, keep up with their their um, influx of bugs, that would be a great referral. Um, an organization uh, or that knows of, let's say, a third party partner that is having trouble and really struggling, they can refer them to us and, um, and end up collecting those bounties. Katie, one one last thing before I let you go is uh, Luta Security has uh, made some waves for adopting four-day work week and really trying to make significant effort and energy around creating work-life balance and setting up an environment and infrastructure for your full-time employees. I want to ask the question this way. Have you had to... Have there been any burdens attached to that? What have been the trade-offs and what have been something that surprised you from... from uh, that, that decision? Well, I would say that 
since making that decision, we have recorded record profits. So that should be, you know, for all the fellow business owners out there who are worried about it, our productivity is higher than ever. And we have become more and more profitable since adopting the four day work week. And it's four days, 32 hour work week. Um, I would say the trade offs are that I will sacrifice myself before I let any of my people work on a Friday, which is their weekend. Right. Um, so I do, as the business owner who has made this commitment to my full time employees, um, I tend to definitely, um, you know, for example, for people who don't get the memo and send us, you know, time sensitive sounding, urgent sounding stuff on Fridays, um, I'll either just deal with it myself. Or I will tell them very politely yeah, that received, my team is off until I've Monday. received one of those. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm sure you have, right? Exactly. But yeah, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. So I mean, I think honestly, the commitment to be a labor-centric company was I, I couldn't have done anything else. Um you, you know, think it's I've, scalable? Yeah, absolutely. It's scalable. I mean, we're more profitable this way. People are happier, you know. I think it's not just scalable, but I think it's like it's gonna form I, I will hope that it will form a a labor movement of successful, you know, successful capitalism that isn't driven by labor exploitation, but actually driven by labor support. So, you know, if you support your labor, they'll support you. And that's what we found. That's a perfect place to leave it. Katie, as usual, come back anytime you anytime you feel like it. Thank you very much Thanks for so coming much. on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely.